Chapter 6. Eternal Judgment The doctrine of eternal judgment appropriately comes at the end of the study on the elementary doctrines. Internally, within the body of Christ, administration of this doctrine is judgment amongst believers. This is an administration reserved primarily for mature sons of God, but its necessity is one that secures the order of the house of God. Externally, it's the order of the body of Christ, secured and displayed through eternal judgment, that presents a righteous standard in creation by which God may judge all things. Through eternal judgment, the standards of the kingdom of heaven are brought to the earth for the purpose of showing the alternative to the limited, biased, and prejudicial standards of the nations of mankind. Perhaps more than any other feature of the life in the kingdom of God, eternal judgment distinguishes and ennobles the people of God among the people of the earth. It's impossible to judge any matter apart from the existence of a standard. Because the standards of righteousness have been long absent from both the world and the church, the accurate portrayal of the nature of God has declined dramatically in the modern world. The restoration of both the doctrine and practice of eternal judgment to the body of Christ is a prophetic signal that God means to cause judgment to come, first to the house of God. Once the body of Christ has been accurately realigned to the righteousness of God, then God will inevitably use the perfected standard to bring the world to judgment. It must be noted that God's intent in applying the standards of righteousness to mankind is to correct the deviation from His original nature and to bring about reconciliation. This process determines what may be saved and what is without use and must be discarded. Judge not, lest ye be judged. The scripture most often cited as a prohibition against judging others is actually a warning against the judgment of unqualified judges and the use of unrighteous standards. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And that's from Matthew 7, 1-5. This passage warns a person who is presuming to pass judgment against using unrighteous standards. Among other problems exists the likelihood that the one judging will be judged by the same prejudicial standard. The unqualified judge is a person who lacks the clarity to judge, yet insists on judging others while willfully, or unknowingly, disregarding the failings that cloud one's judgment. A prejudicial judge who lacks clarity cannot employ an eternal standard. The admonition is to fix those faults that lead one to apply prejudicial standards as a prerequisite to making righteous judgments. It is not a blanket prohibition against judging or even the eventual judging of the specific matter. Before one can judge a matter, that person must have been subject to the removal of conditions that would lead inevitably to a distortion of the judgment. If the judge is not so qualified, then the process of eternal judgment is flawed from the beginning and it cannot result in righteousness and peace. Contrary to the popular belief that the Bible instructs not to judge one another, Scripture makes clear that judging within the body of Christ is necessary to its proper functioning. In 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, it says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Paul warned the New Testament church against submitting internal disputes to the secular authorities. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. If you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. And that's 1 Corinthians 6, 1-5a. He also made clear that disputes would arise, but that the believers themselves needed to settle these disputes. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another. And this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? That's 1 Corinthians 6, 5-7. Invariably, disputes will arise among the people of God, threatening to disrupt the good order that the Holy Spirit seeks for the body of Christ. All manner of things must be settled in order for believers to live at peace with one another, but it is clear that believers should not submit these matters to the judgment of secular authorities. While it's wrong for a believer to judge matters if he or she is unqualified, dealing with conflict internally is still necessary for the body of Christ to function in proper order. The elementary doctrine of eternal judgment is the foundation for righteous judgment among believers and it is the necessary principle for establishing or re-establishing divine order in the body. Eternal judgment can be thought of in four basic concepts. One, the qualified judge. Two, the eternal standard. Three, the application of the standard. And four, determining the outcome or verdict. This process is necessary for the maturing of the body, and it's critical for the role of the mature believer. The qualified judge. If no one is qualified to judge, then the standards of righteousness become clouded as critically important matters go unattended. Absent the administration of righteous standards, all manner of evil can infiltrate the ranks of the people of God. The young are devastated by such lack of clarity, and an environment in which no one is held accountable discourages the older and more mature believers. Without qualified judges available to apply eternal standards, the standards of righteousness are reduced to indistinct and incoherent forms. If eternal standards are not employed, then the people are unable to distinguish the false standards from the true, and are therefore unable to determine what is godly and what is worldly. The qualified judge removes false and inappropriate standards and restores divine order. The absence of a righteous standard, however, is the classic biblical definition of lawlessness, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Lawlessness and false standards lead to chaos, disorder, and the disruption of the body of Christ whereas eternal judgment is the accurate application of eternal standards to human conflict, and this elementary doctrine brings order when chaos would otherwise dominate the people. Eternal judgment redeems conflict, which would be wholly divisive in the secular world. Among believers, however, conflict can yield the most valuable results, uncovering the area in which growth towards maturity is most needed and restoring lost relationships. Until conflict arises, one's hidden impediments to maturity may remain firmly in place, influencing both thought and behavior. Conflict disturbs settled conditions and brings things hidden away in the dark places of a person's soul to the surface. The accurate handling of disputes often permits the best chance of growth possible among believers. However, it is imperative that the process of judging strictly observe divine protocol. A Divine Standard of Judgment 
The first element of the divine protocol for righteous judgment is the standard that the qualified judge will apply, called an eternal, divine, or righteous standard. God's intent in eternal judgment is for His nature and character to be the measuring stick of human behavior. This is an eternal, and therefore a necessarily unbiased, non-prejudicial standard. Whereas a prejudicial standard is rooted in the human failings of an individual, a divine or eternal standard represents the importation of the character of God as the measuring stick of human behavior. The standard is God. Those whom the Holy Spirit has assembled into Christ, the Son, are His earthly representations. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. That's Hebrews 1, 1-3. Any judgment rendered within the body of Christ must be consistent with how God would judge the matter. Moreover, the mature Son of God is the instrument through which God Himself judges the matter. Regarding the resolution of conflicts and the judgments rendered therein, Jesus taught that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. An eternal standard of judgment requires mankind to adopt both God's standards and His character in the substance and form of judgments rendered. In doing so, eternal judgment is rendered by God's representatives on His behalf, but this requirement also makes the administration of the eternal standard the prerogative of mature sons. The substance of eternal standard is one of perspective. An eternal standard views human events from a position of timelessness. A temporal standard is limited by time and the resulting urgencies determined by mankind's imperatives. An eternal standard is unmotivated by human priorities. It is a standard that runs true to eternal values but furthers them in a temporal context. Eternal standards are consistent with the unfolding of God's plans within human circumstances viewed from a heavenly perspective. Moreover, an eternal standard may bring to bear certain aspects of God's nature to prevent great loss to the household of faith. God's nature includes qualities such as mercy, grace, and forgiveness, whereas rigidly biased human standards of judgment have no place for such qualities, even though these qualities might preserve and ultimately redeem the one being judged. The intent of all spiritual judgment is to redeem and restore the one being judged to his or her eternal destiny to the maximum extent possible. Examples of the power of an eternal standard abound in Scripture. If the young Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, had been judged solely upon his actions, human standards of justice and retribution would require the forfeiture of his life. He had persecuted Christ's followers, harassed and imprisoned many early believers, and arranged Stephen's murder. Yet God judged Paul by an eternal standard that included God's plan for Paul's life, instructing Ananias, a disciple in the city of Damascus, to go and visit Paul. God revealed his plan for Paul's life. In Acts 9:13 through 16, we find, "Lord," Ananias answered, "I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call in your name." But the Lord said to Ananias, "Go." This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. If judged by human standards, Paul would have been lost to the house of God before he could be redeemed to become one of the leading figures of the early church. In a similar way, Peter was redeemed by an eternal standard. 
During Christ's arrest and trial, Peter swore vehemently that he did not know Jesus. Faced with the possibility of being arrested and tried alongside Jesus, he disavowed any knowledge of the Messiah. But Jesus was undeterred by Peter's denial. Later, when Jesus was commissioning Peter, saying, Feed my sheep, Christ looked beyond the moments of Peter's weakness to the certainty of his calling. God revealed to Jesus that he had chosen Peter to present the truth of Christ, first to the Jewish people and then to the Gentiles. An eternal standard originates from the viewpoint of the throne of God and permits the introduction of characteristics of God that are inaccessible to human standards of judgment. Judging from an eternal point of view, one sees what God knows about a person, situation, or the future, and then can judge the matter in a manner consistent with God's unfolding purposes. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's 1 Samuel 16.7 Normal human judgments are limited to the way things appear and the facts surrounding the events that have transpired. In Hebrews 4, 12-13, we read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. But God judges the heart. Judgment from an eternal point of view brings the kingdom of God more completely into the earth. By contrast, unrighteous judgment discards eternal values as unimportant because it is incapable of understanding or appreciating the value of the eternal. Jesus cautioned his disciples about submitting things that may have great eternal value to unrighteous judgment, which has no concept of the eternal. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Judgment cannot be placed in the hands of one unequipped to apply an eternal standard because that judge is likely to discard persons and things of great eternal value through temporal and linear judgments. Applying the Eternal Standard There's a precise format for the application of righteous judgment. It begins with determining the authority to judge the matter. Regarding the standards of eternal judgment, Scripture cautions the believer not to judge the unbeliever by divine standards. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of the light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. That's John 3.17-21. This limits the sphere of judgment over which the believer may exercise divine authority to the house of God. Even when the believer is invited to judge matters among unbelievers, that person should refrain from applying divine standards, since the jurisdiction of the righteous does not extend to include the unrighteous. The unrighteous are condemned already, and therefore a judgment that establishes guilt rather than redemption is superfluous. A believer who is placed in the position of judging outside of the house of God is not at liberty to employ divine standards as the basis of judgment. Instead, he or she is limited to the applicable rules established by the governing authority. 
For example, a believer who is part of the judicial system must judge matters on the basis of the appropriate secular laws and is barred from introducing divine standards such as mercy, forgiveness, and reconciliation as part of the available remedies, though such standards permeate the resolution of disputes among believers. Therefore, the first step in the process of applying an eternal standard is the accurate determination of who has the authority to judge in the matter at hand. Even among believers, the one who is required to judge must have a sufficient relationship to the person or circumstance subject to judgment. Generally, matters concerning the entire house of God require apostles as judges, though apostles may also judge personal matters, typically those having far-reaching effects. The matter itself often gives rise to the appropriate judge. The next procedural step is to accurately determine the true facts. This step is critical and must be undertaken without bias or prejudice. Divine judgment cannot be issued if the underlying facts are inaccurate. It may become necessary to corroborate the facts. If the circumstances require corroboration but it's difficult to obtain, it may be appropriate to suspend the process until the facts become clear and incontrovertible. If what is alleged is true, but the judge is unable to corroborate the facts at the time of the allegation, then it's certain that the behavior will reoccur, and at that time, judgment may proceed. This step may require the patience of a mature son to let the matter ripen so that the judge may properly employ the righteousness of the appropriate eternal standard. The next step is to bring forth the appropriate standard by which to assess the facts. This, too, is a critical step that may be subject to prejudice and the taint of evil. If the appropriate standard is not employed, the results will be disastrous. Jesus demonstrated the manner and the form of an eternal standard when he was tempted in the wilderness. Satan first tempted Jesus by trying to convince him to turn stones into bread. Jesus had just concluded 40 days of fasting, and he was very hungry. Satan's temptation was meant to exploit his weakened condition and his gnawing hunger. Subsequently, Jesus judged the enemy's words by bringing out the accurate standard, saying, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In bringing out this standard, Jesus returned the focus to the Spirit over the soul and did not depart from his position as the approved Son of the Father. Being quick to learn how Jesus judged matters, the enemy thought to confuse the issue by appearing to bring out his own version of an eternal standard with the next temptation. As Jesus was taken to the pinnacle of the temple, the enemy invited Jesus to throw himself down from the highest point of the temple with the admonition, It is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus corrected Satan by bringing out the appropriate standard. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to test. Although Satan exactly quoted prophetic scriptures regarding Jesus, it was not the appropriate standard. Jesus would not consent to an inaccurate standard because he knew the mind of the Lord. It is possible for those who have authority to judge matters to bring an inexact standard. In order to distinguish between the correct standard and an inappropriate one, an absolute symmetry must exist between the letter of Scripture defining the standard and the Spirit of God, which adheres accurately to and discloses God's intent in judging the matter. It was easy for Jesus to deflect the enemy's attempt to induce him to employ an incorrect standard. Indeed, the enemy's efforts were transparently manipulative and designed to bring about Jesus' physical death. In the temptation, the intent was not to receive Jesus as the Son of God and to obey Him. From the beginning, the enemy's modus operandi had been to use the Scriptures as a weapon designed for destruction. 
Satan intended to bring about death and destruction with the accurately quoted scripture. This contrasts starkly with the purpose of God. In this way, it was patently obvious that the intent behind the proffered standard was inconsistent with God's nature and his intent for Jesus. Even if the standard for judgment is biblically based and may represent an exact quotation of scripture, it is necessary to take the next step and to examine the motive and likely outcome behind the standard that's presented. Even if the scriptures are accurately quoted, the issue becomes the intent of the person offering that standard. If the foreseeable result of the application of that standard is inconsistent with the nature of God, then the standard is not the appropriate one. However, if there is consistency between the standard and the redemptive nature of God, even if the immediate consequences may be quite drastic, it is likely the right standard. For example, eternal judgment may require the exclusion of an immoral brother from the fellowship of believers. In the short run, this judgment may appear to be an unloving decision, but as a last resort, it may be the action required to expose the level of deception into which the errant believer may have fallen. If it is understood that this standard is applied as a last resort to destroy a rebellious believer's resistance to the truth, as contrasted with exclusion from the fellowship because he has become unsavory, then God is able to bring redemption even through this extreme act. The Verdict Once the appropriate standard has been brought forth and applied without prejudice, then the outcome will reflect the will of God. An example of this judgment occurred when God brought judgment to the reign of Belshazzar, the nephew of Nebuchadnezzar. In the midst of feasting, a hand appeared and wrote on the wall of the palace. Daniel translated and interpreted this sign. In Daniel 5, 25-28, we read, This is the inscription that was written, Many, many, tekel parson. This is what these words mean. Many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar's reign had been brought under the scrutiny of God's judgment. The scales are a metaphor for the accuracy of the measurement and the templates of God's judgments and the unbiased application of the standard of judgment. God issued a verdict regarding Belshazzar's reign. The scales were unbalanced. The verdict was not in Belshazzar's favor. The final stage of this process is the decree that frames the will of God. God could have chosen mercy. But since there was no eternal purpose in prolonging Belshazzar's reign, mercy was not the appropriate decree. Belshazzar's kingdom was taken out of his hands and given over to conquerors. This is one of the numerous examples of judgment that occur throughout scriptures. Throughout all the examples, the procedures of righteous judgment are clear and distinct. There is a qualified judge, an eternal standard, the application of the standard, and a decree consistent with the will of God for the one being judged. Quite often, the purpose of judgment itself and the accompanying decree are to bring confrontation in order to remove blockages to the purposes of God. Always, the goal of eternal judgment is to restore divine order. Eternal Judgment and Changing Seasons The eternal realm is different from the realm of time. Eternal perspectives are advanced in time through incremental changes. In time, these increments are linear and are understood in terms of past, present, and future, But in the eternal, the end of every matter is known from the beginning, God's unchanging, omniscient nature, which is inclusive of his present knowledge of all things, even things yet to occur in time, is presented as the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. God never changes. 
But in the way that the unmoving sun appears to move across the daytime sky as the earth rotates from the linear perspective of the temporal world, God may appear to change. Time permits the revealing of all the details as well as the processes that underlie the purposes of God. Since God knows the end of every matter and the outcome of every process before they are launched in time, each increment of the unfolding is consistent with what is already known. Things in heaven are meant to come into the earth and be seen on earth as they are in heaven, in their due and appointed times. It's impossible to be in harmony with heavenly mandates while seeking certainty by predicting the future as an extension of the past. People's tendency is to attempt to control all the events that affect their lives. This creates the illusion of control that comes through predictability. However, the tendency to retain control of one's circumstances by any means is inherently in conflict with God's intent to host eternal events and show divine processes in time. Eternal things are meant to change the trajectory of unfolding events to eternal purposes, confounding human predictability. Remaining dedicated to that which seems predictable based on past events, even in the face of true change, will cause one to conflict directly with God's purposes. Religious organizations and institutions that sow human traditions and culture as a form of control over the people show the nature of this inherent conflict. Since the Emperor Constantine in the early 4th century AD made the church the official religion of the Roman Empire, the emphasis of this religious pattern in the ensuing two millennia has been to thoroughly infuse itself into the culture of people groups and to define the people's history through religious practices and observations. To the state church, tradition is the most valuable asset, as it is the means by which national groups identify themselves culturally. This has resulted, over time, in an immunity to change. The inert forms of most national religious groups resist even modern values that challenge the weight of religious traditions. For the sake of tradition, most national religious groups choose to continue to insist upon holding back the direction of national groups intent on freeing themselves from religious traditions that they have come to see as burdens upon private choices. Whereas this direction has nothing to do with eternal processes and divine imperatives, it does illustrate the current dilemma of religion, which has pinned its hopes for the hegemony of people groups on co-opting their culture through the infusion of religious influences. The people of God should expect changes as eternal purposes unfold in the context of time. It was common for the early apostles, as well as the people, to observe the unmistakable changes in their time and to refer back to prophecies spoken centuries before as their point of reference to understand and interpret the phenomena that they were currently observing. It's frequently reported in Scripture that persons in the New Testament, whether as individuals or as a council, would say, This is that which was spoken by the prophets. In order to come to that conclusion, they had to measure and weigh the events unfolding before their eyes in light of what had previously been declared prophetically. They judged these defining events of their times not by the political expediency of social value of their moment, but by eternal standards. The earth is meant to host things predestined by God to reveal His intents, known before the foundations of the world. It is certain that God's eternal purposes will continue to unfold on the earth. In every epoch, the responsibility of the righteous in the earth is to accurately judge the unfolding of events in their day by eternal standards and to reposition themselves and their mindsets in the unfolding will of God in their times. If they fail to do so, they will be as unenlightened as the unbelievers around them and will stumble in the darkness of their own unbelief. Whether or not believers will benefit from the knowledge of this unfolding and the economies that support these changes will depend upon whether eternal judgment or the desire for control and predictability is the basis of the evaluation of the events.
it is still incumbent upon the body of Christ at present to accurately determine when the unfolding events upon the earth are those things spoken of in prophetic scripture. Eternal Judgment and the Restoration of Divine Order Before change may occur, the present order has to be evaluated. If things have been held in place by traditions or misconceptions, and the fruit of those conclusions have long been established as inconsistent with the intent of Scripture, and the ineffectiveness of these conclusions have long been obvious, then change is mandated. However, in many cases, systems that have been developed to administrate these conclusions and leaders whose positions give them a vested interest in maintaining the status quo are the least interested in changing. Eventually, their neglect of the truth in favor of their positions begin to frustrate the people who follow them to the point where the people mentally categorize ineffective forms as simply necessary aspects of social order to provide normalcy and habitual patterns of behavior. But they do not actually believe that these forms are beneficial helps in the pursuit of God and the desire for personal righteousness. Unfortunately, though, they will often continue to pattern their lives around their participation in these forms. It's unmistakable that in the current church culture, the vast majority of people attending church regularly do so for social reasons. It's equally apparent that their search for God and for personal righteousness is conducted without reference to either these institutional forms or the leaders associated with them. If people are to find their way back to the truth and to the effective working of the power of God in their lives, these religious forms and the accompanying doctrines that form the basis of traditions with which people identify must be removed in order to make room for the truth. Whether by complete reviews or partial assessments of particular doctrinal positions, the present form of church has to be judged. It is neither appropriate to ignore these forms nor to continue to acquiesce to them. The standards of eternal truth must be applied, and these forms, together with the leaders who are the proponents of them, must be held to the account of eternal standards. As the review progresses, the present forms that have been discredited must be replaced by the long-neglected original standards. Divine order must replace traditional order as a consequence of the application of the template of the original intent of God as the original intent of God is restored through the process of eternal judgment. This review should not be conducted by unskilled and immature believers. God has placed within the body of Christ the gift of the Apostle, whose primary work is to present the order of God for the relationships within the body. Astonishingly, both institutions and their leaders frequently do not consider eternal standards to be of any importance. Most institutions have some form of order that is an adaptation of societal order. Typically, this form is largely based upon the collective will of the membership or the historic power of certain offices within the institutions. Wherever disputes arise, matters tend to be settled in a fashion that either reflects the general will of the people in the hope of preserving the wealth and influence of their organization, or in the protection of the institution and its operatives. By contrast, whenever disputes arose in the early church, the apostles used the occasion to align the believers with the order of heaven. These occasions of conflict allowed for the rapid advance of believers' understanding of the interplay between heaven and earth. The mind of the Lord was further disclosed in the administrations implemented by the apostles. This process saw a transition of diverse peoples into one holy nation. Among the significant issues that arose was the admission of Gentiles into the early church. Previously, the church was composed exclusively of Jewish people. Paul's work among the Gentiles eventually forced a confrontation with the apostolic leadership in Jerusalem, 
requiring an apostolic council to convene to rule on the matter of whether the teachings of Jesus were applicable to the Gentiles as well, and to decide whether the kingdom of heaven was now available to all mankind, or whether Gentiles who desired access to it were required to undergo a conversion to Judaism as a precondition to admission into the kingdom. The Apostolic Council in Jerusalem reviewed the prophetic scriptures and heard the unimpeachable testimonies of apostles such as Peter and Paul, and were led by the Holy Spirit to conclude that the message of Christ was as available to the Gentiles as it had been to the Jews. This was the point at which the early church emerged in its fullness from the prior context of the order established through Moses for the bringing forth of Christ. The tradition of Judaism had served its intended purpose to bring forth the Messiah out of the tribe of Judah. Once Christ came, with him came grace and truth for all mankind. It was incumbent upon the early apostles to review the order of Moses that had served its purpose, but now, like scaffolding, that order had to be taken down and discarded. In its place, the divine order of the sons of God, together with an open invitation to all mankind, had come. The approach to God was no longer shrouded in the mystery of types and shadows, such as the tabernacle and the law. Instead, access to the throne of God had been widely granted to everyone who sought God. The veil had been torn in two by the hand of God. A new order had come, and with it, a new administration. Paul was the apostle to whom the authority to establish the Gentiles in the kingdom of God had been chiefly given. In Ephesians 3, 1-7 we read, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. The removal of the old order and its replacement by the new required an eternal perspective and a procedure by which the old was set aside and replaced by the new. It also required competent judges and apostles to perform the judicial function of acknowledging the end of one order and the introduction of another. The early church habitually engaged in this practice. Among the things that characterized the life of the early church was that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The gift of the apostolic imparts to all believers an equipping to be able to conduct certain levels of judgment accurately, employing eternal standards. Each of the five gifts contributes specific and unique impartations that equip the maturing believer to function fully in the representation of God as part of the corporate Son. The specific impartation of the apostolic brings an understanding of divine order together with the appropriate administration. All human relationships are subject to disagreements and conflicts, and members of the household of God are no exception. Divine order is one of the distinguishing and glorifying aspects of God's people. The ability to resolve conflicts in a way that promotes maturity among those involved in disputes is an unqualified demonstration of the functional benefits of love. Although the process is never easy, consistently applied, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. It is necessary for all believers to be exposed to the elementary doctrine of eternal judgment inasmuch as everyone will sooner or later be involved in serious conflicts as members of the body of Christ. 
The proper stewardship of these conflicts is an indispensable and necessary element of the believer's growth and maturity. Vengeance is mine. Whenever an offense has been committed that is so heinous that vengeance seems the only appropriate response, judging the matter from a human perspective may seem altogether warranted. Mankind's desire for retributive justice is well represented in its legal systems. Retribution, however, usurps all consideration for corrective justice that has eternal value. Even the believer is tempted to default to these standards in certain circumstances in order to satisfy the human desire for retribution. In the secular legal systems, they may be the only remedy to be considered. However, among the people of God, a different standard applies. Vengeance is not a goal of divine judgment. The aim is always redemption. An eternal point of view considers that the human is a spirit clothed in flesh, and the flesh will suffer many things, including injustices, and will eventually die. The purpose of a spirit clothed in flesh is to put the nature of God on display even in circumstances of gross injustice, permitting the wrongdoer the opportunity to see the display of the nature of God in the person wronged and, thus, be shown the greater form of human life. God has preempted this demand for vengeance among the believers by retaining all rights to it. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Nothing escapes the scrutiny and ultimate judgment of God, and everything is judged by His righteous standards. Even if a matter that cries out for redress goes untended for a long while, the intent of God is not to neglect it, but to redeem that which is subject to redemption. In Matthew 5, 43-48, it says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will that get you? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brother, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Eventually, everyone must stand before the throne of God in the seat of eternal judgment to give an account for his deeds. The purposes of God may not be apparent at the time of the misdeeds of men, as in the case of Paul and Peter, the righteous judge is restrained by God's preemption of vengeance. In Romans 12, 19-21, we find, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. It is this preemption that makes way for the Lord's will and righteous judgment. The love of God is defined as patient, kind, and long-suffering. He permits the maximum possibility of change by permitting the unrighteous to display the hidden wickedness within their hearts, so that if they could be turned, they would be induced to do so. Suffering, whether by one's own misconduct or at the hands of the wicked, permits the victim to display the characteristics of the love of God. Whether one suffers or lives an uneventful life, all human life is characterized by its brevity. As discussed earlier, under the elementary doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, it is to be understood that the human body is merely the housing for a person's indestructible spirit. All suffering in the flesh, of whatever kind, is meant to elicit a response that displays the nature of God in the face of injustice. 
All manner of harm relates only to the human body and is useful to perfect the responses of the human soul, while being incapable of affecting the human spirit. Although God is patient, kind, and long-suffering, He is never tolerant of evil. God Himself is kind and merciful to all, because He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. However, God's mercy eventually gives way to His justice when one's heart becomes sufficiently hardened that He moves beyond the point of redemption. Even though the average person does not consider himself a wrongdoer, in the eyes of God, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Although God's justice may be long delayed, and individuals may be given over progressively to a reprobate mind by the removal of restraint, God intends to show the true nature of man's depravity as the last act of confronting him with the need to change. Even the procedures that are designed to arrest the misconduct of a brother, up to and including expelling the immoral brother, are meant to be acts of redemption. However, even if it appears that the wrongdoer has managed to avoid the consequences of his illicit and wicked acts, there awaits for him a time of reckoning from which there is no escape. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received a knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Eternal judgment must be distinguished from the vengeance of God. Now, eternal judgment must be distinguished from the vengeance of God. Eternal judgment is an elementary doctrine with which believers must become experienced. It is a part of the routine practice of every maturing believer. It's a requirement for aligning oneself with the will of God during the course of one's life, and it's a prerequisite for the determining of the seasons of God. The vengeance of God, which is certain to come upon the wicked and the unbelieving, is the final decree of God over those who live in opposition to His will and His purposes. The character of this judgment is in the nature of vengeance, as God eventually removes the taint of sin from creation. Even angels are subject to this judgment. Judging Angels Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? That's 1 Corinthians 6, 3. As sons of God are brought to maturity, they exercise eternal judgment as the principal component of their rule over various spheres of authority to which they are given. Unlike earthly princes who rule by human standards, Jesus did only what he saw his Father doing, and this template remains the standard for righteous judgment among the sons of God. Whereas for individuals, this standard is applied within the spheres of rule that mature sons possess, the corporate son also rules by this standard. One of the prophetic utterances indicating the overall purposes of Christ coming into the world recognizes that He comes to rule as the King over the kingdom of heaven. He established the kingdom of heaven and entrusted the ongoing rule of it to the body of Christ. The government shall be upon His shoulders. As the head, however, He continues to exercise dominion and rule over the whole earth from His place upon the throne of God. His body in the earth is the instrument through which He exercises His sovereign authority. All of the activities of rule associated with the kingdom of heaven are designed to bring eternal standards to bear on human circumstances. As earlier noted, this process replaces the culture of sin with the heavenly culture of righteousness. The existence of the sons of God employing the authority and rule of Christ establishes the culture of the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. This has the effect of challenging the model of life that has evolved out of the kingdom of darkness. The light and glory of the kingdom of heaven projected through the rule of sons, has, among its effects, the ability to reclaim mankind for God and to do so by destroying the works of the devil.
God intends not only to judge and destroy Satan's works by revealing the corporate Christ and the glory of his governance, he also means to bring to judgment the angels who sinned and, ultimately, to eliminate them from the created world as part of his intent to purge the taint of sin from both the visible and the invisible creation. Now, to understand the purpose of the judging of angels, it is necessary to understand why God created the world. One of God's great purposes in creating the world and putting mankind into it was to permit the vindication of the righteousness of God in the choice of man as his heirs. God originally conceived of putting his love on display through the model of the Father and Son. God created man as an expression of himself that was intended to reside in a venue different from his own. The context for God's decision to make man in his own image and likeness was so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. That's Genesis 1.26. This is consistent with God's intent to relate to man as a son and his representative, but shows that the son's representation was to take place on the earth. The expression of God's love is displayed in its perfection in this model. God originally conceived of man as a creature who would be endowed with a spirit out of the person of God, and therefore man would be capable of loving both God and his fellow man in the same manner in which God himself loves. Man was created to love as God loves, and therefore to put the essential nature of God on display in creation. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. The standard of love in this commandment is the same standard for God and man. By contrast, angels were created to serve both God and man. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? That's Hebrews 1, 5, 14. The angels who rebelled considered that they had been unjustly relegated to serving man whom they regarded as an inferior being. They wanted to be the sons and the heirs of God. Because they were not created to carry and portray the love of God, their view of inheritance was related to the exercise of power rather than the restraint of love. Some of the angels, under the leadership of Lucifer, called into question God's righteousness in his choice of man as his heirs. Although God could have obliterated the angels who sinned, he understood the nature of their challenge and chose to pursue them through righteous judgment. Had he simply annihilated them, the issues regarding the righteousness of his decision to eliminate his opposition would have been left unanswered. Alternatively, had he given them an answer, he would have lowered himself to the same place of created beings and empowered the creation to judge its creator. This would have replaced divine order with chaos and eliminated all standards of righteous judgment. Instead, he elected to provide an answer through the very creatures who were the subject of the dispute. God's answer would be that man would put on display the righteousness of God, and by that, destroy Satan's deception and hold all the angels who sinned to account. Man's righteousness, as a mature son of God, would put on display the exact nature of God, his Father, and become the standard for judgment of the angels themselves. The first man, Adam, was provided the choice of relying upon the presence of God or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as the basis of his decision-making, and he chose independence from God. He was aided in his choice by the active participation of Satan. Jesus, the last Adam, was subject to the same temptation to proceed by wisdom of convenience. Instead, though hungry from forty days of fasting, he chose to feast upon the bread of God's presence. 
his decision restored to man the right to live again in the presence of God. The effective consequences of Jesus' decision was to permit mankind to be redeemed from Adam's departure and to be reassembled as the sons of God. This collection of God's children in the earth is referred to as the body of Christ. They are to become practiced in the exercise of eternal judgment. Their affinity for that way of life will confirm them to the very standards of eternal judgment and will not only destroy the devil's works, but will also be the standard by which all the angels that sinned will be held to account. As a holy nation, composed of a people drawn from the entire spectrum of humanity, assembled to carry the glory of God in the earth, one of the most brilliant and startling aspects of the corporate life will be the fashion of its rule. In this regard, especially the house of God will be seen as a city of light upon a hill. It will be the visible expression of righteousness and will be the characteristic most frequently referred to as the basis of their observable peaceful existence. Beyond establishing righteous processes in the earth, the people of God will become the standard of eternal rectitude by which the conduct of angels will be subject to the review of God's judgments.